agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Today, in part three of our election 2020 series, we'll be discussing President Trump and Joe Biden on the economy. Now, because of the massive effect that the pandemic has had on the economy, we'll be focusing a lot of our discussion of President Trump's economic record on the pre-pandemic economy, especially as we discussed the response to COVID-19 in depth on last week's episode. So with that, we will get right to it, and we'll start with President Trump's record on the economy. Now, I asked all of you to rate the president on his economic policies, which you did in your papers on that standard one to five scale, with one being awful and five being excellent. So who wants to start us off on how you rated President Trump on the economy, as well as why you gave him that rating? Olivia. I gave Trump a three, um, a lot because it was kind of, I didn't really know how to rate him because um, if you look at, based on a lot of indicators for the economy, it's been, well, prior to the pandemic, it's been doing generally well under Trump. Um, However, a lot of that can be credited to the economy that uh, Obama had when he left office and that Trump inherited. A lot of trends um, under Trump have just been continuations of trends that already existed under Obama. Um, so it's hard to know whether, you know, how much credit to give Trump for that, but the economy has been generally strong. Um, my other criticism was just that um, the unemployment rates don't um, really portray the uh, number of um, discouraged workers, which has been increasing for um, a while. And then also the um, number, uh, or I mean, just the jobs that Trump has created that have been minimum wage rather than livable wage jobs. Um, So I wouldn't say that just because unemployment rates are down that um, the vast majority of people are in a good um, financial position. Um, But, you know, based on these standard indicators, the economy has been doing pretty well under Trump. Okay. So so it sounds like that three is just sort of a, well, he didn't manage to tank the economy in any in any particular way. And there are a lot of trends that positive trends from the Obama administration that kind of continued on. And so that kind of leads to kind of a mediocre sort of rating. Faith. Um, I also ranked President Trump at a three. Um, I think we can say that pre-pandemic, the economy was doing pretty well. Um, really well, actually. But um, my big thing as to why had the president break even was because of the deficit. And the national debt is increasing. This is the highest national deficit under any president. And I think that's going to have a lot longer term consequences that Trump isn't really taking into consideration. You know, that's a that's an important point, I think. And I'm sure many listeners know that when we're talking about the debt, oftentimes we look at it in terms of debt to GDP. That's one of the most common measures because it's a better indicator than raw dollar terms because, of course, how big a debt is is in large part dependent on how able you are to pay it back. In a larger economy, you can handle a larger debt, other things being equal. Now, uh, as Faith sort of alluded to, when Barack Obama left office, the debt-to-GDP ratio was 76.4%, meaning that 
The national debt in 2016 was 76.4% the size of the U.S. economy that year. In 2019, which is, of course, the last year we have data from, it's 79.2%. And when he was running for president in 2016, Donald Trump said he would eliminate not just the budget deficit, but the, the entire, at the time, $19 trillion national debt over the course of eight years. And so kind of playing off that with that background, does it matter that under President Trump, even before the pandemic, that the debt has grown and not shrunk? What do you think? Yeah, Olivia. I think it matters because Trump um, made all of these promises that he was actually going to reduce um, the deficit. Um, not that I think a lot of people had that as their first priority on economic policy, but he did kind of push that as you know one of his goals. So for him to have increased it so much, um, for um, a lot of it due to funding for the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, which he claimed would end up paying itself back or paying for itself, um, you know, with the boost to the economy. Um, we saw that the boost to the economy, um, you know, based on what many experts have um, have evaluated, has it, it was very short-lived. Um, it, you know, the economy saw some boost in certain um, aspects the year after the um, act was passed, but those, those um, benefits have kind of gone away at this point. So um, it's very unlikely that, you know, the benefits from that act and the boost to the economy will ever actually pay for itself. Um, so we just kind of sit here with a dramatically increased deficit um, and debt and, um, you know, not long-term benefits. And we will get to the uh, tax cut and uh, tax cut and jobs act in, in just a minute, because that is the president's, I think most people would agree, major achievement for better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Um, Noah. Um, so one thing I kind of was like a lot of the stuff that Trump has promised has not yet happened. And so obviously he's only been in presidency for three years. It's going to be his fourth. But a lot of stuff that he like talks about, he hasn't been able to fully succeed with. So, like one of the things I kept on seeing was like he was going to claim he's bringing back manufacturing to America. He's brought back some, but once you start that trade war with China, the um, I'm sorry, the amount of jobs that are coming back for manufacturing has actually generally just decreased. I think it was um, let me see. Um, currently, I think it was 2019. We only brought about. 58,000 jobs back to America just for manufacturing. So uh, to me, it's just like a lot of unkept promises, which obviously every president has that. But I mean, like he is like, he's supposed to be the successful businessman who's going to help our economy. But it seems like the economy is only getting better for certain people and not everybody else. You know, I, well, someone, one of you actually commented on that. Uh, Alan, in fact, you commented in your paper that you thought that the trade war with China might be I think you called it a short-term negative, negative in the short term, but positive, at least potentially positive in the longer term. And so that kind of ties in a little bit to what, what Noah was talking about. Uh, could you sort of explain why you maybe see this as being a, a good thing, even if it causes some problems in the near term? Yeah, absolutely. I do consider it a good thing. Um, our manufacturing sector essentially disappeared because we were making international trade deals for such a long time with countries like China and letting them into the World Trade Organization. And China's been shown to not be playing fair with us or with a lot of other countries. They've been stealing our intellectual property. Um, 
They've been manipulating their currency. They've begun to do that again. And so, well, I do think we are going to see some, uh, a little bit of an economic impact by taking on China. I do think long term it will strengthen our economy. And in addition to holding China accountable, putting these tariffs in place, the trade war, and even the new um, U.S. Mexico Canada agreement we've negotiated, all this is essentially assuring that long term a lot of these companies are going to start coming back to our region of the world because they're going to be worried about the long-term economic impact of staying in a country like China when we're in the middle of a trade war. What do, what do some other folks think about that? I mean, you can make the argument that, that essentially this would be the ideal time to do the sort of things that President Trump has done during a period of very strong economic growth, record low unemployment, and that he used those good economic times to act with the sort of political courage, at least on this issue, that that few, if really if any of his predecessors from either party have shown. And so things like pushing the trade war with China to get a better deal or renegotiating NAFTA into the uh, USMCA, I like to call it Camus, just because I don't know, I'm weird. But anyway, so uh, what do you think about that? Is that is that something you could look to and say, yes, that's a that's a true Trump accomplishment, because, of course, even I believe Joe Biden has said that that USMCA is a better deal for American workers and America in general than NAFTA was. So uh, how much credit does President Trump deserve for this, would you say? Olivia? I actually um, shockingly agree. (laughs) Um, I I think it's always in general um, good for the economy and good for, you know, American citizens to kind of bring back um, business and manufacturing to the United States. Um, and I also, you know, it, it's best to not be super reliant on other countries in general. And so, you know, if you are increasing manufacturing of goods and um, products and, you know, doing more business in the United States rather than, you know, um, you know, purchasing from other countries, because um, our trade deficit, again, is of concern. Um, I I don't really have criticism about this. I, I do agree that, you know, it probably will be a good thing in the long term. Um, I don't like that. You know, I, I want to say it was like 700,000 manufacturing jobs have been lost under Trump. Um, obviously, people are really hurting from that right now. But I can see how, you know, for the country as a whole, um, it is really important to be kind of um, self, you know, not reliant on other countries and be able to, you know, be self-sufficient in the economy. Now. Joe Biden has. Oh, go ahead, Doc. You have a comment. Somebody uh, mentioned before about Trump, uh, you know, uh, his accomplishments. Uh, I think one of the the, the uh, really great things about the man is he has done or tried to do the things he promised to do uh, when he was campaigning, which is just much more than all of his predecessors in recent memory. I mean, uh, he he is actually doing the things uh, with trade that he said he was going to do. Um, he has uh, increased uh, employment, even, even if it's uh, – minimum wage jobs, at least people are getting back into the economy. I mean, the uh, the whole uh, 
but as the TCJA, uh, all all of, all of all the things that were going to happen, he has tried to make happen instead of saying, "All oh, I can't do that now." He has he has really he is as a businessman strategist at the top has taken care of those things. You know, a lot of people would would point to, uh, I mean, most people would point to strong economic growth and, of course, say that's a good thing. But plenty of people, especially on the left, would say, well, that's true. But if you if you kind of disaggregate that, you'll see that we have two economies that the rich are getting richer and the poor are not doing very well. Joe Biden has said many times that working people, many working people are being left behind in this time of great economic growth for those at the top. What do you think about that? I mean, is there something to this? And and if there is, to what extent has President Trump tried to address this or make it better or worse even? Um, As I said later on in my paper, you can't make the poor richer by making the rich poor. You try to make everybody richer. Uh, If you make the pie larger. You don't cut tiny little pieces of the pie and pass them out of, and say, this is all there is, because there's a lot more if if you try to, to make it. I mean, actually, Winston Churchill said that about 80 years ago, I think. What do you what do you what do you folks think about that? Other comments on that? The idea, I guess, being basically that the more taxes you put on the wealthiest, the the less you encourage sort of risk taking and investment and 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 that sort of thing. And the the wealthy really, and businesses and the wealthy are the engines of the economy. They're the ones that innovate and grow and hire. And the more you tax them, the less of that you're going to get. And so you're actually going to perhaps shrink the entire pie. Is that a is that a reasonable argument or or not? Yeah, Olivia. I get where that argument is coming from, but I think um, such a small, like, okay, so I know that the progressives, um, like Elizabeth Warren, was considering a 2% wealth tax um, only on people who made, oh, what was it? It was like, I mean, like billionaires. Um, it was, you know, a very small percentage of the population. Um, and it was only a 2% wealth tax. and um, with Biden, I think um, he was not considering like a standard like two percent wealth tax. His was more centered on um, capital gains and um, more heavily taxing capital gains. Um, and I think either of those, I mean, people are still going to profit. And if you're, you know, even if you had a two percent wealth tax, I don't think that's going to discourage anybody from wanting to become wealthier. Um, and I don't think increasing the tax on capital gains is going to disincentivize people from um, continuing to make investments and sell assets and property um, because they're still profiting. They're just not maybe profiting as much or they're having to pay more on their profits. But I don't think that slightly reducing um, profitability of you know ventures like this is going to make people just suddenly not want to um, put forth the effort to make profit. I mean, people are still gaining more money, which is the goal. Okay. 
And let's let's talk a little bit more specifically about tax rates, because, of course, I mentioned President Trump, President Trump's biggest economic policy achievement was that TCJA. And it, uh, among other things, it cut individual income tax rates. It doubled the standard deduction. It eliminated some personal exemptions and it cut the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent, which is a pretty huge break. Estimated that the uh, CBO, I believe, estimates that. This will increase the deficit by around $1.9 trillion over a decade or so. So, I mean, is this, is this a positive achievement of President Trump? What, what do you think? Has this been a, a good thing? Is it too early to tell? What do you think? Yeah, uh, Faith. Um, I think pre-pandemic, it seems really well. Um, I think more of the idea where it comes with like the idea of the rich getting richer possibly comes with some of the comments that Trump has made himself. Um, after the law, um, the act was passed, he was at dinner at the Mar-a-Lago with some friends and he told them all, you just all got a lot richer. And um, with the photo that actually went viral of the Treasury Secretary and his wife holding up the sheets of new um, $1 bills, which um, said, I think a reporter said, it looked like two villains from a James Bond movie. Um, so part of the reason why I think I have a lot of trouble with the huge tax cut is also because it was paired at a time where interest rates were really low and where interest rates are really low and tax cuts are really high. Yes, it is going to incentivize investment, but then you have the problem of now that we are in a pandemic, those are two of the most powerful tools in economics to help kind of incentivize jumpstarting the economy. And now you use both of them. So are you going to cut tax tax rates lower again? Well, no, well, interest rates are already low and that's another way to get people into invest. So I think you kind of take away some of your economic strategies in that way or hinder them. Uh, Alan, you had a comment on this. You you said that the, the promises about what the TCJA would do, you call them uh, typical Republican trickle-down arguments. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure, yeah. Um, the big argument the Republican Party made when they were trying to get the TCJA through Congress was that by cutting the taxes for these large corporations who would supercharge the already strong U.S. economy and result in them reinvesting in operations here and improving workers' wages as well. But we just, I don't think we see that. And I think the data shows it. I mean, there was like a bump, but it wasn't as significant as they claimed it would be. For um, example, GDP growth did not reach 3% like they said it did. I mean, it did reach 2.4. The average hourly earnings, average hourly, hourly earnings, sorry about that, did not rise by 7.8 like they claim, but it did rise by 3.3 and job growth did not improve. It only remained stable. So they keep claiming that, oh, if we make the rich richer and we keep giving them more money, you'll start to feel that as well. And like, maybe that argument is real, but um, pretty pitiful compared to what they're feeling right now. So so in other words, it really was literally a trickle. Uh, the, the benefits didn't pour down, but they were largely confined to to the, the top segment of, of the economic stratum. Uh, Noah? I think going off what Alan was saying was, um, in one of the articles we read this week, it says, just because you give them a tax cut doesn't mean they're going to put money back in the economy. Sometimes they don't even put money back in the economy because they want to save that stuff. So I feel like giving these people, like these rich people, just a tax cut. I mean, like, just because I'm, like, let's just say I'm a millionaire. For my reason, if I get a tax cut, that doesn't mean I want to put money back in the economy. That just might be, oh, well, I can say that. I can do something else later with it. So just because you're getting all these tax cuts doesn't mean you are actually going to help the economy 
do whatever you want with it. You want to buy another car? Yes, that helps the economy just a little bit, but it doesn't help it that that it needs. And so, some might say in response to that, a common conservative argument in response to that would be, well, that's true, but of course that you know, rich people aren't, most rich people, I imagine, aren't putting their money in big Scrooge McDuck vaults, right? They're, they're, they're investing it and that is far more efficient than, say, you know, what the government would do with it is, is certainly one argument. Olivia? I just wanted to comment on what Alan was saying because, um, yeah, he's exactly right about the trickle down. Um, well, the lack there of trickle down, I guess, um, because uh, the statistic was, I think, 80 percent um, or 80 percent of the, um, I guess, savings from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, for corporations was um, dispersed to investors through like buybacks and dividends. Um, only about 20 percent was actually invested into operations. Um, Trump had um, defended the act saying that uh, it would help the middle class because it would result in um, kind of like an incentive to hire more and, you know, um, cut unemployment rates um, and then also, you know, uh, provide wage raises, um, hourly uh, wage raises to employees. And we didn't really see any of that. Um, like I said, the vast majority of these savings was just given back to investors for the most part. So, um, and also on uh, what Trump or Trump, what Doc was saying um, about Trump uh, holding, you know, true to a lot of the promises that he's made. I agree to an extent, um, but I think like in this case, we see that Trump kind of just inflates um, the rates of these promises that he's making. Um, and, you know, so he said that he expected wage growth to reach um, five or even six percent because of this act. And it has grown to three percent. Um, but, you know, I think that's kind of representative of a lot of these promises that he's made where, um, you know, he promises something huge and then we get a little bit. So he kind of held true to his promise, but not to the extent that he led people to believe. Now, what about the argument that, well, that, that that's certainly true. We haven't seen the benefits from it that some proponents were claiming, but that's in part because the president decided to aggressively go after China and renegotiate details. Uh, trade deals, and that has caused some uncertainty in the business community. And so the fact that there are these cuts in regulations and the TCJA, that sort of at least helped to balance that out and make it possible for the president to be really aggressive in getting the best possible deal for American workers. What do you think about that argument? Uh, uh, I think cutting the regulations is probably... Uh, the greatest part of that uh, whole act, uh, the it's it's allowed business to uh, do things they they would have to uh, go through all kinds of hoops to have done before. Uh, they can just plow forward and get things done. We talked about. Uh, China uh, and being, uh, oh, what word would you use? Subservient. It's almost like, especially in the um, the medical things for the uh, for the pandemic, we are just almost totally dependent on China for PPE, which with the uh, Taking away the regulations, Trump has brought a lot of that back to the 
Midwest and put those businesses on basically a war footing to manufacture that PPE in the United States, which they wouldn't have been allowed to before. So these are some of the things that I think that he has really, you know, really done well. Uh, I think uh, before someone might have been you, Olivia, mentioned the buying American and, and that sort of thing and increasing domestic industries. And this is one area actually where Donald Trump and Joe Biden, there's there's maybe less distance than in a lot of other policy areas. In fact, uh, part of Joe Biden's economic platform is a, a Buy American campaign that calls for the federal government to purchase $400 billion worth of goods and services from U.S. companies. Uh, and so I wanted to ask all of you, is is that a good idea outside of, say, certain strategically important things like, as Doc mentioned, PPE? In other words, does buying American or requiring that American products or services be bought, if American companies aren't actually making the best products at the lowest prices, doesn't that kind of go against market principles? And and if so, is that a, is that a good strategy or not? What do you think? Alan? I definitely think it goes against market principles, but we're on an uneven playing field here. China, the way their um, economy is structured, it's really interesting. The government essentially owns all the land. They give um, advantages to Chinese companies. So if we want to be able to compete, if we actually want to have a domestic market, I do think we need to invest in America in a way we haven't before to create a very similar system to them so that we're not at a disadvantage. Now, now, when you say create a very similar system, I don't imagine you mean state-owned businesses or, or anything like that. No, right? no. Okay. But being able to prop up domestic industry okay. and, the and, way they do. And that sounds a lot like, again, a lot like what President Trump has argued for. And in fact, to a certain extent, what Joe Biden and plenty of progressives argue for. So there might be some bipartisan consensus against the, what a lot of what a more mainstream economists would say is not necessarily the greatest thing in the world, who tend to be greater proponents of, of free, if not necessarily all that equal trade. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Joe Biden's economic proposals. Uh, one of the things he really focuses on is inequality, as I already mentioned. And, you know, almost no matter how you measure it, people in the top income tier are doing better and pulling away faster than, you know, from the rest of the economy. And, and so how big of a deal is this? Uh, you know, does income inequality and, and wealth inequality matter? And, and if so, who's more likely to make a significant difference here, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? What do you think? Olivia? Um, I think it's a major issue that in the United States, the top 10% um, of Americans um, possess what is like 65% of the nation's wealth, um, while the bottom 50%, so literally half of American citizens, have um, just around 1% of the nation's wealth. Like that's very disturbing to me. Um, so I think it's a major issue, and I'm uh, really happy to see Biden addressing it. Um, I, I like some of his ideas on, um, well, I mean, like, like we talked about before taxing, um, uh, capital gains, but also he had some plans for, um, like making childcare more affordable, which is really important because, um, I, as I said before, there's a big difference between minimum wage and livable wage and minimum wage is even less livable, 
um, when you have to also shell out, you know, almost the same amount of money that you're making at your job hourly um, for childcare. And I think um, that was just one of the plans that Biden had, but he, he addressed the wage gap and um, burdens on lower class and even um, middle class individuals um, in trying to get back into the economy and increase their wealth. Um, so I like some of his ideas. I just would like a little bit more detail on how he plans to implement them um, and what those plans would look like. Okay. And just for a little bit of context here, Joe Biden calls for, in his plan, calls for raising the top tax bracket in individuals to 39.6%. It's currently 37%. That 39.6% was where it was during uh, much of the Obama administration's probably a connection there. I should point out that historically, that that top rate has been considerably higher. In fact, from uh, well, it was over 91% from 1951 to 1963 and 70% from oh, 1971 to 1980. So that, it's lowered a lot. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on that specific proposal. Should those top rates go up? Or are, is President Trump right that, if anything, they should go down a little bit more? What do you think? Uh, I think that tax rates about where they are are optimum. Uh, seems like uh, things are on a fairly even keel. Uh, we were talking about before about uh, minimum wage for uh, the wealthy and the not wealthy. Uh, but, you know, when they're trying to articulate, are there poor people, terribly destitute people that are not getting three meals a day? I mean, other than the, the homeless that are living on the streets. San Francisco and Los Angeles. I did a paper for another class uh, a couple of years ago about it was a sociology paper, and we were talking about people who are living below the poverty line. And the study, my study showed that 99% of people living below the poverty line had every convenience that didn't, uh, people above the poverty, every one of them had a flat screen television. Every one of them had at least one flat screen television. They all had refrigerators. They all had nice apartments. Uh, every creature comfort that you can think of that a middle-class family would have people below the poverty line. So when you look at the wealthy and the not wealthy, uh, I'm trying to visualize terribly poor people. I mean, poor people in the United States are vastly more wealthy and wealthy people in foreign countries. Okay. Um, I, now, I, I think uh, I think some might certainly take issue with that, but I think your general point is one that uh, being 
what we mean by being poor doesn't necessarily mean being absolutely destitute and not having indoor plumbing or, you know, or electricity or something like that, though, of course, there are you know, plenty of people who are actually homeless and, and things like that. Yeah, Olivia. Sorry. I just really quick. Um, I can speak from personal experience having two parents who are teachers. Um, my mom, well, she's unfortunately she has to teach from home right now. But before she was uh, teaching virtually, um, she every single day for years has been having to take um, extra food and extra snacks to her students and go to Goodwill and buy coats um, for her students because um, the area she teaches in is so poor. And it really, I mean, it's not far-fetched to say that there are a lot of people who really are not getting three meals a day, especially people who have a lot of kids and um, are having to come up with money for childcare. Um, it just to be able to work a minimum wage paying job. Um, I, I just know from personal experience, there really are a lot of people who are not eating three meals a day. And that's one of the reasons that um, there was so much controversy over shutting schools down is because a lot of um, students rely on the free meal program at schools to eat, which is why a lot of schools actually were still providing free meals even after the schools were shut down. Um, I think there are a lot of people living in poverty who absolutely are not living comfortably or having all of their um, needs met. Um, and I, I think that uh, from a moral standpoint, that's, my, um, that's where my support for uh, increased taxes on the wealthy comes from because there are people who have so much money, they literally don't know what to do with it. It's in savings or um, they're spending it on their 10th multi-million dollar car and I'm not saying that you're not entitled to that with the money that you've earned. However, just from a moral standpoint, when there are people who cannot feed their kids um, and they're disincentivized to even get a job because getting a job, number one, disqualifies them from benefits that they're surviving on. And number two, means that they have to find care for their children while they're at their job. Um, I just, again, I have, I think it's very disturbing the amount of wealth in this country and that we still have a 12% poverty rate and 50% of our nation holds 1% of our nation's wealth. Alan. I'm butting off of that. Um, as to why it might be beneficial for individuals with substantial amount of wealth to pay more is this economic insecurity Olivia is talking about. There are a lot of studies. I've looked at a lot of studies from Europe that indicate that economic insecurity leads to political radicalization. I think we're seeing this now as a result of the recession and the probably it's probably going to be worse after the COVID recession. Um, Europe and America, there are now people are now giving into a lot of much farther left wing talking points. They're talking about socialism on the left, on the right. There's this anti-immigrant argument coming up. I think. By allowing this economic inequality to fester, by allowing economic insecurity to continue, the wealthy are putting their long-term interest at risk and the long-term interest, interest of democracy. Noah. Um, so one reason why I do support that people in America should have higher taxes is because of certain needs that every citizen of the world needs. Um, uh, in the United States, we have over 2 million people who do not actually have indoor plumbing or functioning water. And so to me, as being one of the uh, apparently these best countries in the world, where some people in our country don't even have the access to running water, 
it's kind of crazy. To me. And also going off of food, I personally volunteer often at a local food pantry to help um, our senior citizens and people who are in the poverty line. And let me tell you what they're like the happiness is when they get these this once a month basket that we can just barely provide for them because they we take food basically only off donation. And so it's up to these wealthy people to make these donations. It doesn't mean they're going to. So when you get to deliver this food to somebody who's barely surviving off their money they make, and when they actually start in your when they you see them start to because they're like, I get to eat a meal. Like I get to actually have a decent meal because I now have this food. It to me just shows that America is not truly worried about every single citizen. It's truly worried about making sure that rich people actually are able to do whatever they want, but we aren't worried. Now, a good faith. Um, oh, I was just going to add to that and just kind of talking about in terms of education, one thing in Biden's plan I actually did really like um, was his emphasis to invest in low-income school districts because one of the best ways to improve someone's standard of life is to also improve their standard of education. Good point. All right. Uh, Now, most of you indicated in your papers that you liked Joe Biden's proposal for a $15 an hour minimum wage. And here's my question to you. Do you think this should be a federal mandate to the states or should states get to decide this on their own? I mean, you could potentially argue, for instance, that given different costs of living across the country, that maybe it's better to allow for more flexibility. To give you an example, New York State has set a $15 an hour minimum wage specifically for New York City, obviously a very high cost of living area, but it's $13 an hour for surrounding areas. That's scheduled to go up to 15 I believe, next year. And it's $11.80 for the rest of the state. So what do you think about that? Should, a, should there be a federal minimum wage that, I mean, there currently is now, but one that's as high as $15? Or should states be allowed to set this on their own based on local and state conditions? What do you think? This is Doc. Uh, I lived in Boston for a couple of years. And $15 an hour in Boston is not going to get you anything, believe me. Uh, so you are going to have to set, if you're going to set a minimum wage, you're going to have to send, set it by location. Uh, the minimum wage in Boston is going to have to be a lot higher than it is in Covington, Kentucky. It's just unbelievably different. Uh, just an example, if you've seen people who work for Fidelity Insurance, who have moved from Boston and moved to Kentucky because Fidelity moved down here, they sell in Boston, they sell a tiny little three-bedroom house, come down here and buy a mansion because the house they sold, Boston, they sold for $700,000. And that's what you can buy in Kentucky, $700,000. I mean, so the minimum wages have to be vastly different by locale. I will say this about $15 minimum wage. It will drive a lot of 
entry-level jobs out of the market. There'll be a lot of high school students, uh, a lot of retired people who could have gotten a job that are not going to get a job at $15. Okay, and that, you know, that kind of addresses, Noah, you had a question about why President Trump isn't necessarily really a fan of raising the minimum wage. A lot of people ask that question, and that kind of goes to Doc's response, a concern, especially among small businesses, that that would basically be crippling. And so either that they'd have to cut back on hiring or hours entirely, or they'd have to raise prices. So it would, would have that sort of uh, effect. Any other thoughts on minimum wage? Uh, do you like or dislike Joe Biden's proposal and, and why? Noah. So I like the idea of having a, like a federal minimum wage, but I kind of do understand what Doc is saying, though. It's like in certain areas, like wealth is like going to be defined different. Because like in New York City, yes, they do have that $15 an hour minimum wage, which hopefully will actually help because a lot of times like you can't, I mean, an apartment rent for just a studio apartment could be over, over $1,000. So it's like some places this minimum wage does need to be higher. But then again, it also just needs to be a little. That's the issue I have. It's like, in Kentucky, the minimum wage is seven dollars and twenty-five cents. I think it was, not one hundred percent certain. I think it's seven twenty-five. And I mean, personally, I do not know any single person that can live off seven twenty-five. I mean, like I make above the minimum wage, but still, with my current job, I wouldn't even be able to like probably afford an apartment all by myself. So I think the most important thing is like we need to have the federal government pressure states to actually create a livable wage, not just a minimum wage that people are required to pay. And that's why I think where that $15 an hour comes from is that by some some estimations, that's sort of a minimum livable type wage. Olivia. Yeah, I think basically we all can agree. I uh, The current federal minimum wage is $7.25, I want to say. Um, and some states are just leaving it at the bare minimum that they can go, while other states realize that $7.25 does not work for their people and um, their cost of living. But I do think that on a federal level, whether it's $15 or another amount, um, $7.25 is not enough. I think there needs to be an increased federal minimum wage um, for the states who are never going to um, go above the federal level and they're just going to keep it as low as they can because um, there are some states who will just keep it at the bare minimum. Um, and I think that I, I agree that um, the cost of living is very different by state and by area, which means that minimum wage, in order for it to be livable, is going to have to vary. But um, I do think that there's a major need for an increase on the federal level to um, to force states to increase it at least by a little bit. And then for the states that want to um, take it even higher, great, good for them. But um, I states are not, there are certain states who are not going to raise their, their minimum wage until they're forced to by, um, on a federal level. No, and speaking of minimums, there's another sort of minimum I want to ask all of you about, and that's a minimum corporate tax, because in addition to of Joe Biden's proposal to raise the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent, and pre-TCGA it was 35 percent. He also wants to enact the minimum corporate tax of 15 percent of reported profits, and that's even if deductions, credits, other loopholes, and so forth make taxable profits zero. And just to give you kind of some context for this, according to one reputable study, the average tax rate for the 400 largest U.S. corporations in 2018 was 11.3%. That's, that's you know accounting for various deductions and credits and so forth. And 91 of the Fortune 500 companies paid no federal taxes at all, including 
companies like FedEx, General Motors, and Trump nemesis Amazon. So what do you think about this proposal? Should there be some sort of a minimum corporate tax like Joe Biden is suggesting? Doc. I I find I find that statistic really disturbing that can report to your shareholders that uh, made Boku money, but then you pay no no tax. Uh, I just I just find that kind of disturbing. Um, there there should be I and this is coming from me. There there should be some kind of of tax. You know, if you tell your shareholders we made this much money, you should pay tax on that much money, one way or another. It's just uh, just mind boggling that uh, that happened. It sounds like it's sort of a, a basic fairness argument you're saying there. They should at least have some sort of accountability and pay, pay something. Does anyone, uh, anyone else have a, a thought on that? Because I guess the alternate argument, right, would be that, well, if we are an incredibly low-tax place, that's going to attract even more business and therefore create jobs and grow the economy. And so we should drive the corporate tax rate down as low as possible, and if corporations are taking advantage of tax law to to pay even less, well, that just means less money that they're paying to the government, and more that can go into investigate, you know, in, in, investing in innovative services and hiring and that sort of thing. So, isn't that a good thing? What do you think, Olivia? I think, in theory, I understand that, but like I said before, what we've seen in practice is that um, companies tend to just redistribute those um, savings on taxes to investors um, and not reinvest it in operations and hiring and raising the wage. Um, so I think that if if it was the trend that companies generally actually did um, allow this money to trickle down and and increase um, the standard of living for um, their employees and um, hire more people and contribute to decreasing unemployment rate. Um, great, but that doesn't tend to be what happens. And I do think that corporations need to be held accountable. And I don't think it's fair that, like I said before, people are struggling to eat and they're still paying taxes. So I think corporations that are um, making an ungodly amount of profit should should be held accountable and have to pay taxes on it too. Alan. I'm inclined to agree with Olivia. I don't think it's fair necessarily that we're forced to essentially lower or have non-existent corporate tax rates because some countries' entire economic model is based on being offshore tax havens. I don't think that's fair. And even the Trump administration doesn't think that's fair. They um, created the global intangible tax income with their um, the passage of the ECJA. That was a part of it because we are seeing this massive influx of corporations hiding their taxes and offshore havens. So I don't think it's fair that um, we have to lower our rates because other countries' entire economic models are based off of that. I, I should point out that that uh, TCJA, for some reason, does not come trippingly off the tongue. I think all of us have gotten stuck with that at least once, so don't, don't worry about that. Uh, a final question on 
tax plans and economic plans. Who do you think is has a better economic plan, strategy, vision, call it what you will, for the next four years or so for the country, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, and why? Okay, it's me again. Uh, I wrote in my paper that talk about the Biden plan, and I don't think there is a Biden plan. I don't think Biden has anything to do with any planning are it's a it's a democratic party plan um he's kind of a figurehead puppet whatever you can say but it's the conglomeration of elizabeth warren bernie sanders Kamala harris and a bunch of other people that have put together a plan and got joe biden out in front of it But anyway, I mean, they have this resiliency agenda. Make life less risky for American, for ordinary Americans. And I guess the way I look at that is you can say, uh, we want you to give up your freedom or some of your freedom for safety. And Benjamin Franklin said, when you trade your freedom for safety, you have neither. And I just, I don't like the idea of how they're trying to make make it safe. They talk about planning, planning for the next recession. If they're planning, making a plan to figure out how to deal with the next recession, why don't they make a plan that because there is not going to be a next session. Um, I just, I, I think it is, this, this whole thing is very nebulous, uh, made up by the internal uh, dealings of the Democratic Party, and I don't think Biden's got a thing to do now, of course, I should point out that I don't, I don't think that anyone anyone believes that either Joe Biden or Donald Trump is sitting down there with an Excel spreadsheet and a bunch of sharpened pencils, you know, putting together a plan. And so to a certain extent, that's absolutely true of both sides is that these plans uh, reflect what the economic advisors of both teams uh, come up with and the extent to which the candidate, him or herself, is responsible for that, even at the broadest level, certainly is something something that you can you can question. Olivia, and then Faith. Yeah, there are some things that I really, really like about Biden's um, plan. Like I said before, we haven't seen too much detail on it, which is my only, um, I guess, concern. But it's so early, and I'm sure that he'll provide more detail in the debates to come in the next um, couple of months leading up to the election. But um, I really, so um, as I've stated, um, I'm very concerned with the poverty in this country and um, with the increasing wealth gap. And um, I, I like that Biden's plan is kind of centered around addressing that and um, not catering to the exorbitantly wealthy, but, um, you know, trying to help improve life and improve um, financial situations for the lower and middle class. Um, and I also really appreciate that Biden's plan is focused a lot around the fact that the economy cannot fully recover until we address the pandemic. Um, and that was, you know, critical on Joe Biden's um, campaign website for, you know, how he plans to improve the economy. 
is that we first need to get the pandemic under control because um, as long as people are dying in mass amounts and um, people are losing employees because they're out sick um, and, you know, people are uh, having to take sick leave and, and losing money and not able to invest as much in the economy, um, there's no way for the economy to fully bounce back until we, you know, get the virus under control. Um, so I really appreciate that. But I also appreciate that Biden um, discussed, you know, the the uh, disparity between, um, you know, poverty and white communities and in minority communities and how um, minorities are disproportionately affected by poverty. Um, and he addressed uh, specifically affordable housing and how he'd like to expand on affordable housing um, because gentrification is a major issue that is displacing um, minorities and, and leading them to homelessness um, and uh, I just I, I think um, it's really important that that he's discussing some things that Trump has not discussed that contribute to the wealth gap and poverty. Um, and I'd really like to see what, you know, some of his how some of his plans play out for that. OK, Faith. Um, I do agree a lot of what um, Olivia was coming off of with having to see how the result of the pandemic <clears throat> plays a role in the economic factors. Um, going back to kind of what I was talking about earlier with education, I do like that it is a big focus for Biden to invest in lower income communities in terms of education, because I think that is one of the ways in which everyone in America can benefit. Um, another thing that I did like about Biden's plan is an emphasis more directed on environmental economic policy to help in the future combat issues like climate change. Noah. So um, one major um, thing I like about Biden's plan is that he's also talking about the wage disparity between men and women. And then we don't even get to, because um, he says he wants to end that. And then I think another thing that like I wish he would go further on is talking about how like women of color even get it more and like make less to them what a white woman does. I mean, and then even further to that is black trans women actually drastically make a lot less than any other woman does. So I feel like when he's what that plan he's trying to do, I think is the step in the right direction to end the wage inequality that is also happening as well as his plan to also um, stop the inhumane payment of people with disabilities. Just because you're disabled does not mean you cannot work or does not mean you should not make a livable wage. Disabled people, I think, legally are allowed sometimes to be paid 50 cents an hour. Just because you're disabled does not mean you're So I truly do like that Biden is trying to get on some social issues that actually are important to some people. So I would like to know if Trump has any thoughts on these, but obviously I just find it. Okay. And finally, Alan, we're going to let you have the last word today. All right. Well, you see, the thing with me about Biden's plan and Trump's plan is I feel like Trump focuses a lot on our foreign economic policy and does a lot of good things, whereas Biden focuses a lot on our domestic policy in a way I don't, a way I don't think Trump does, especially when it comes to addressing income inequality. And I think that's a good thing. And although Biden claims to have a lot of similar views, to Trump on our foreign economic policy, he still supports the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a renegotiated version, perhaps, but it's still the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would move our jobs overseas. So I, I just don't know if Biden's worth trusting again. I don't know. Maybe, but I'm pretty ambivalent. OK, well, on that ambivalent note, we will wrap things up. And before we go, I just want to remind Everyone, that if you have a question for any of us or if there's something you'd like us to address, expand on, clarify, we would love to hear from you. Just send us an email at mail at politicsguys.com or post a comment in the episode link we'll put up in our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. 
we will do our best to answer your question or respond in an upcoming episode, time permitting. And if in addition to this series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you would like a third full-length Politics Guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of everything, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you'd like all of our content, just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with everything that we are putting out. We'd also appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share episodes on social media. And for more great discussions, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. And also, again, a Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Miranda, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Susnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis show on Saturday and the next segment in this election 2020 series on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.